You're listening to The Retail Perch with Shaka Raman and Gary Hawkins. We're going to discuss industry challenges and opportunities in grocery retail, AI, current and upcoming trends, and so much more. Hey guys, uh, welcome back to another episode of The Retail Perch. Another beautiful day out here in Jersey, Gary. I hope it's beautiful out there in Denver as well. <laughs> Well, Shaker, actually, I just looked out the window and it is snowing again here in Denver. Oh, my gosh. Uh, we oh just had four or five inches the other night and there's snow in the air again. But it's going to be well, up to 75 know. this weekend. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, you know, I was going to say, you know, let all our listeners collectively pray for sunshine in Denver. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> maybe that'll work right today. But anyway, it's, it's great to be back here, Gary. You know, there's so many exciting things happening. I think we've had a slew of some amazing guests on the show. And uh, I think, the, you know, who we have today is going to top them all. I'm looking forward to this discussion. And I want to definitely thank uh, Stephanie Doherty for putting uh, the retail purchase together on a weekly basis and the amazing listeners out there who've been continuing to support us, listen to us. And I think some of these conversations have been so informative, not just for me, I'm sure uh, listeners are loving this too. So I want to introduce our guest for today. And uh, she comes all the way from Seattle, Diana Freik. Yeah. Can I say that right? You okay. got it. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Is with the retail voodoo. Mm -hmm. uh, she believes that business should be a force for good and uses her networking superpowers to drive change in food, beverage, and wellness industries, which is fantastic, specifically in the areas of employment, diversity, food equality, and promotion of sustainable supply chain. She yeah. also founded and hosted Gooder Podcast, yes, uh, where she interviews powerhouse women leading on every level in food, beverage, and wellness. And I will leave the rest of the amazing story that she has to Diana herself. So welcome, Diana. Welcome to our show. Oh, hi. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So yes, uh, my name is Diana Freik. I am one of the business partners of two of Retail Voodoo. We are a brand development firm out of Seattle, Washington, and we do specialize in uh, building, growing, and developing um, food, beverage, and wellness brands kind of in the naturals category, but that definition's gotten blurry a little bit. We'll talk about that later. Um, my job, my role in Retail Voodoo is business development and marketing, though I've worn a number of hats, as do many entrepreneurs, lots of operations I've done, been involved in strategy development, account management, project management, et cetera. And really our goal has been for the past 10 plus years, well, when we first started was to kind of democratize natural products and bring the level of big level CPG marketing and brand positioning to the naturals category. It, that category has matured so much now that we're no longer the sole specialist, but people tend to come to us when they've got either gnarly problems or huge ambitions. And so the types of projects that we work on are pretty significant and exciting. And then my side gig is, yes, I have my own podcast that kind of spurred out of some things that I saw change within the naturals industry as it became really popular. We saw a big shift in people moving of leadership, moving from conventional into the naturals category. And so we went from a naturals category being pretty homogenized, so to speak, a lot of men and women in diversity and leadership roles. And um, in the last two or three years, we saw a big shift of men leaving conventional space and coming into naturals and kind of establishing this kind of subject matter expertise. And I wanted to kind of really backtrack and um, change that dynamic a little bit simply because I feel like 
the naturals industry, our job, and I consider the work that we do for the brand partners that we work with is to help people live longer, better and healthier lives. And I don't think that we can do that effectively unless we have fairly significant representation in a leadership role, simply because if you don't see yourself in the, if the community can't see itself in the solution, then we're not going to be able to do those really big changes that we need to do systemically. And so I created this podcast to kind of just re-elevate these women who are behind the scenes, scientists and CMOs and um, R&D experts and supply chain experts, and just kind of elevate them. Women, BIPOC, LGBTQ, military, just normalize the fact that all of these people are in leadership roles in our category. And I've had great fun meeting some uh, amazing people, really amazing people. Nice. Nice. I mean, that's a very interesting background. So when you talk about naturals, can, can you tell us a little bit uh, I know. I know. You said that the definitions kind of kind of got blurry over time. Yeah. What's your definition of natural? I don't have a real firm definition. Naturals. My definition of naturals is kind of what I still think of from 10, 20, 30 years ago. Organic. I, those of us that have been shopping in the or, with organic products and non-GMO products and whole food type of products. Remember when the organic section was about the size of a crate and everything looked a little questionable, but you knew that it was organic. It didn't look shiny. It didn't look big, but it was just about organics was reducing the number of chemicals that were put into products, the number of chemicals that were used to grow products, trying to keep as much of the natural state of the ingredients and not use too many synthetic ingredients when producing anything from supplements to body care to the products that we ingest. And then what we, what I loved about that community of products, and I do call it a community because it does behave in that way, is that there was always something bigger than just making a profit. There was always like, we're doing this because my son had an allergy or or we want to save the oceans. There was always something that those entrepreneurs were wanting to do than just simply feed the planet or wash a bo- wash a hair or clean a floor that it was so much bigger and it's so wonderful to see that the category has latched onto that and consumers have just really um, especially in pandemic, really latched onto that mm. and seen it explode. And so now brands in the natural space stand for something more than just a way to fill the belly or a way to satiate a desire. Yeah. The definition of naturals is squishy because partly because of marketing. So partly because of my industry, and I can't say that it's us necessary, but it's out there. People who kind of massage words in a certain way and can kind of make things mean something different than they, than what they really are. But then food technology has really in the last two or three years advanced incredibly. And so we're seeing things like meat that looks like a cow, or um, we're growing mushrooms in laboratories that you would normally find in volcanoes and they're protein supplements. And we're able to slice and dice pea proteins. And depending on how you look at or what side of the conversation you are, some people don't consider that natural because we're manipulating, manipulating um, isolates or DNA or whatever, in order to get them to appear to be healthier. Um, and then other people are saying, yeah, but if the net benefit to society and the planet is 
better than what we've been doing in the past isn't that better for you. So it's getting a little slippery and tricky. And I think for the uneducated consumer, it's confusing. And the only way to delineate better for you now is a price tag, which right. is another, which is another yeah. thing that I'm trying to resolve as well, because I feel like there's more people who don't have the financial wherewithal to purchase those better for you products, but have a deep interest. In fact, the people who have less money have more desire to eat a healthier diet and have healthier products in their home because they don't have the finances to be sick. They don't have the finances for doctor bills and they would rather pay to 20% more for something if they know that it's going to be a net benefit for them and keep them away from something even more expensive in the long run. They just require some education. Right. So I think there's a huge opportunity, missed opportunity and a couple of grocers that I think are starting to step into that space and recognize that there's a consumer that's willing to pay more and is a bit more loyal than the more upper middle class, mm -hmm. high disposable, I'll try these 20 products. And if I don't like them, I won't buy them again, type of consumer yeah. out there that I think that we could be tapping into and helping. In past episodes, we've also talked about this whole concept as, uh, of food as medicine. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. where, where the effort has been in terms of educating people. And I think, you know, maybe the past year has automatically done that for people where they realize that, you know what, I'd rather be eating healthier making smarter food choices and protect my immunity and my overall health. Right. And, you know, and I think since they've been cooking more at home, uh, they've been more conscious about what they buy at the supermarket. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I think all those things have maybe raised the level of consciousness about, about, you know, what's good, what's not good. Yes. And I need to read the packaging a little bit more carefully, you know, yes. and, and that trend can be taken advantage of. In some yes. sense, yeah, absolutely. by saying, "Hey, how do I how do I tune the marketing so it resonates with what yeah. people's expectations are?" And I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, when when companies come to you, and maybe there's a company that's genuinely doing something really good, mm -hmm. they want to understand how do I differentiate between these people who are putting out marketing yeah. messages where it can be confused with what yeah. I'm I'm really doing. So, how, how yeah. do you go about educating the consumer with something like that? Uh, educating the consumer or educating educating the brand. Well, I guess it's both, right? Because yeah, it's I mean, really both. educating the brand to effectively and transparently communicate with the consumer about the value of the product. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it, it's a good question. You know, I'm thinking of a brand that we worked with a few years that came to us a few years ago and was wanting to tap into this better for you, no sugar trend that is really, really hot right now. And it's been hot for a while once once the science came out that it wasn't fat that was the issue, it was sugar that was the issue. Uh, the brand is Russell Stover and Russell Stover was, you know, they, they weren't doing as great as they had been in the past with their sugar-free line, which was, that was the, that was the mother. That was the mother. That's the, the biggest portion of their brand. I don't remember what the percentage of their business was, but it was the largest product section or largest brand in the family. And they were, they came to us and they said, you know, we're thinking maybe we, maybe our sugar-free line could be this, you know, maybe, maybe it could be a, you know, a no sugar, natural alternative. And can you guys help us with that? And we said, don't know if that's possible. That's part of the assignment. Let's figure it out. So 
Our team spends a lot of time in research. We like to find out what's happening from a competitive landscape, but we also want to find out how consumers are going to respond to everything from a major brand like that shifting and making a big, biggish, big shift in claims. I'll just use the term claims for this conversation and what's possible for a brand to do. And our research came back that said, you know, it's not, it's not actually that you're brand needs to shift to this new space because there's actually a huge category of people that are still interested in Russell Stover. They're just much younger than you guys are targeting. And so there was, so for us, we needed to help them see the audience in a different way and see the opportunity for their brand in a different way, rather than abandoning the heritage that the, and all this energy that they had had in the brand already And then also identifying what subtle shifts the brand could make in order to move towards a different generation of shopper, right? So sometimes it's not uncommon, like I'll use Harley Davidson as an example, because many people might remember this, but there was a time when Harley Davidson was really, really hot in the sixties. And in the seventies, they tanked because everybody at that time was like, I don't want to, that's my grandpa's Harley Davidson. I don't want that. And they'd kind of fallen out with a younger crowd. And it was because they were using legacy language. They were so leveraged in their heritage that they had forgotten that the younger generation never really wants to associate with the older generation. It's just a natural human trait. And so this, there was a little bit of education around this because chocolate is filled with heritage. People who make chocolate, chocolatiers are... Um, traditionalist by nature. And so we, there was a little bit of education through data. Mm. Here's what the data is showing us. Here's what the trends are showing us. And then by the way, here are some recommendations we might make with formulation. If you wanted to start modifying and getting healthier, better, here are some recommendations that we might make. And then helping their sales team with some new language as well, so that they can then go to their retailers and say, we're putting, we're going to start moving the brand in this direction. This is who we see our, as our new target audience. And this is what we anticipate and what we expect from them and how they'll behave. And the response was really, really was really well received within the organization because they'd not really seen it that way. Sometimes you need that external set of eyes to come in and help you see it. But then to have the data and the language to be able to take to the retailers and say, listen, they're now they're coming to the retailers and they're educating the retailers about how to sell through the product. And at the end of the day, there wasn't necessarily a customer education component on that part. That was more of a brand education component and a, and a sales right. channel. So what are you, what are you yeah. seeing? What are you seeing actually in the stores and the impact of this messaging? I mean, in, in, at least in the last one year, it must have been very interesting for you to see what's the growth in the naturals category. Across. Oh, yeah, the growth in the naturals has been up and. Um, I think it's been a little zigzaggy. We're seeing a lot of growth, particularly in those places that you would expect in household cleaners, personal care has gone up. I think on the natural and organic side, like the food in particular, we saw an immediate shift. It was very interesting. We saw a shift from naturals to comfort. So at the very beginning, 
of the pandemic, those first few months, people were reverting back to those things that they had grown up with that made them feel good. Yeah. Um, Oreos and Cheetos, I think flying yeah. off the shelves, yeah, like macaroni crazy. and cheese and all those. Yeah. Things. Yeah. Like how, what those things that you're like shelf stable stuff, right? Stuff well, you- shelf, it was shelf stable, but was those comfort foods that your, your family of origin would right. give you when you weren't feeling well, or that your mother or your father wanted to, your or family member wanted to help you feel better. Those types of things that f- were flying off the shelves at, at first. And it's so weird because I don't think people were really thinking about it, it was very much an emotional response to the right. stress that was happening yeah. around them. So why should I eat better uh, you know, on one end, supplement supplements were flying off the shelves in record form, along with, like I said, Fritos and Ding Dongs and and all you know, <laughs> Mountain Dew and what have you. Right. As time progressed and people started to get have more information from the scientific community, we started to see the shift back over into naturals and people seeing, okay, well, immunity is important. So what does immunity mean to me? Healthier eating. So you, we did see that shift go back to naturals and moving, people moving away from synthetics. Really hard to gauge exactly what that final impact is going to be, in my opinion, simply because there was so much eating from home that everything looked, sales look good on everything, right? You know, unless it was a complete dud, I think we'll know what the long, what the long-term impact will be somewhere in mid to late 2022. Once we've got back to new normal 3.0, as I like to call it, and people have settled back into their new old habits, their mm. frequency of eating out. They're now commuting again. They may not be eating breakfast at home. They might be eating, you know, a lot of more grab and go again. I suspect that we'll see, though, I think we'll see that naturals will still, still see sustained growth. And I think the research that I've been seeing come across the line is that it's still growing, that there's so much more opportunity out there. Yeah. Well, and certainly the trend, you know, if you look back over the last five or 10 years, the trend has been growth and I think significant growth in the naturals uh, area, correct? Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the other interesting things I've seen is that along with that growth, both growth in existing brands, a lot of new brands, you know, young companies coming into the space, but then alongside that, the big traditional CPG companies yeah. have seen stagnating growth. And, yeah. you know, I've seen some of the big CPGs acquiring some yes. of the smaller innovative yeah. startups in the, the naturals, organic, healthy uh, area. You, you seeing the same thing? Oh, absolutely. I think the the reason why we're seeing, I think, I think there's a couple, three reasons why we're seeing such tremendous growth in naturals, right? Some of it is that there's an inherent got our, I'm Gen X, but the, the boomer generation, which kind of started this whole kind of naturals ish thing, you know, or it kind of thing started giving it to their kids and then Gen X did. So now we have a much bigger, we have a much bigger cohort of people that have grown up with naturals and organics. I think also the influx and interest in cultures from around the world, America has like sanitized the snot out of everything, but most of the rest of the world you know, eating plant, plant-based and whole foods and making your foods at home. That's, that's a, that's an international thing. People eating a whole entire fish, not just a filet. And I think because Americans are now open to it and you have things like the food network and this globalization of social media, I think that 
openness to what natural and better for you is has definitely expanded. And then when you see the interest of the big CPG companies like the Procter and Gambles and the PepsiCo's and the Mondelezes of the world, they're looking at the opportunity and they're going, okay, well, we can't, you can only sell so much Mountain Dew. You can only sell so much blank. And at some point you stagnate and you have to, you have to figure out how to grow the brand. And if you're seeing a trend coming along, it's in your best interest to start taking a look at that opportunity so that as this part of your business flattens or declines, because that's the way the trends are going, you have something else to prop it up. It's just smart business at the end of the day. And what's wonderful. And I've interviewed a couple of, of women on my podcast one from Mondelez specifically and one from Frito-Lay where they're like, oh, I'm, well, I'm, you know, on a secret squirrel mission to kind of change the way we do business anyway inside the organization. And I would rather use the power of a massive Titanic, which might take 40 years to turn, than work for a little $3 million company that's going to take me 40 years and way more heartache. Like it just depends on choose your own adventure, right? You want to, yeah. you want to steer the Titanic to change or do you want to um, steer a couple of of boats um, and a fleet, you know? I think it's a fascinating conversation. I mean, I think it's more than a trend, right? I, I think peop- it's a question of people's awareness has changed about yes. the role of food in their life. And, yes. uh, and I think people are just paying more attention than they used to. And I think there's a bigger demand for uh, truth in advertising and transparency in packaging, uh, yeah. you, know, tra- you know, transparency in terms of sourcing product, yeah. where it's coming from. Yeah. And I think, I think especially, you know, I know I have, uh, I have kids who are, you know, 18 and 22. And I think they don't care about the name on the box as much as is this good for me. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm seeing that trend, and so I'm sure more companies are being pushed towards how do we communicate authenticity, right? Because yeah. because authenticity seems to be the new currency, at least the yeah. younger generation, right? Yeah. And uh, so I'm wondering, you know, what what does that mean in terms of marketing and operating costs for companies when it comes to, you know, because some cost does go into this whole messaging and positioning, right? More than just making of the product itself. Uh, how does that, does that put smaller companies at a disadvantage or an advantage? How, how do you see that? Not really. It's messaging. I think the the smaller companies are frankly in a better position because their nimbleness, when you are steering a, a $5 million boat versus a $36 billion boat, it's much, you have less people to, to steer and um, you also less cooks in the kitchen. It's just the net impact at the end of the day. Some of the things are harder operationally to put into place when you are a small five or even $50 million brand, you don't have the cachet to be able to necessarily impact the suppliers that help you do your work, your access to you know, you just, you just take a look at supply chain in general. If you own your manufacturing, if you, if you purchase so much that you can command a price point for something like a major CPG can, you are going to be in a better position to be able to make demands is too strong of a word, but you can make asks that will be responded to 
more quickly. It's just, it takes a longer time to turn that boat around when you're smaller and you can't find somebody that can create componentry that's in alignment with your brand values, or you can't source a quality of ingredient or, you know, uh, you run out of options in the U S and now you have to outsource overseas and where you begin with, you know, you don't have the resources easily. So I don't necessarily know that there's an easier way or a harder way or a more expensive way. I think each organization has a strength and a weakness in the situation that you're talking about and they're just different. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think sort of alongside that, a related challenge for, brands and manufacturers is providing the data, providing the information through the supply chain, but especially so it can be made available to the end consumer, right? Yeah. I I mean, shoppers today, and I'm seeing this across all age groups, Yeah. um, you know, gone to the days of making a list, you know, I need milk, bread, eggs, cereal, or whatever, (laughs) you know, now it's either at home or in the store aisle, I'm researching that product yeah. to see what's in it, see if it aligns with my right. dietary needs, health needs, right. et cetera, et cetera. Right. But the, the data to support that's got to be made available by the manufacturers. Yeah. And really, frankly, that's where certifications can certainly help now. For example, you know, I'm thinking of your your Gen Z children that you mentioned earlier. Gen Z is really, really interesting group of people. We see them kind of as Gen X sort of 2.0 in in such a way that they are not so influenced by the previous generations um, that but they are also they're interested in making an impact but they don't want the glory which is slightly different than millennials which are a little bit more in the in the like I want people to see that I'm mm-hmm. doing a good job not necessarily from an arrogant standpoint but they want credit for doing the work where right. gen z is a little bit more like I just want to get this taken care of because it's the right thing to do but this younger generation that you're talking about Every young generation is always going to scrutinize the previous generations. It doesn't matter. The, the boomers scrutinized the, their parents, Xers, their parents, et cetera. You go down. So that's expected. And so I think for me, the biggest thing, and I'll go, get back on topic here, is what we're going to call um, Gen C. This is the COVID generation, which is right mm-hmm. on the tail end of Gen Z, because they are fundamentally, I think they are going to have Um, been impacted by COVID in such a foundational and fundamental way, as much as like the greatest generation did during World War II, that just the change of the entire universe. Um, So I'm really interested. I'm like, I can't ever, I'm so terrible. I'm already like, forget Gen Z, I'm on to the next one. And Gen (laughs) Z hasn't even entered into the consumer, consumer space. But when we were talking about, oh, goodness, Gary, what the heck were we talking about? I've already lost track. We were well, talking so about- So we were talking about the need to have the data, the information yes. being made available to Yeah, so, and- so certifications is what I was talking about. Now, certifications are a really easy, easy way for um, a consumer to be able to identify those important things, but it gets really tricky because there are some naturals brand that spend so much time and effort in certification that their front of pack is like littered with all of these things that at the end of the day, um, they feel like it means something, but without the brand standing for something, those certifications don't mean anything. So it's a kind of tricky as a brand. You have to have your um, product efficacy. It's got to taste really great. Your packaging's got to do all the hard work on shelf. Your brand has got to stand for something. And then 
those certifications are kind of the last checkbox that help the consumer who is wanting somebody else to have done that vetting work um, so that I don't have to stand there in front of my, in front of the aisle going, which cracker am I going to buy today? You know, so B Corp is one that we're huge fans of. They are a B Corp certification certainly helps not only with the um, efficacy or the quality of your product and the sourcing of your product, but how you run your company from soup to nuts, mm -hmm. everybody from mm -hmm. front to back. So if you see a B Corp and then you see um, a fair trade and that's important to you, or if you see an organic or a non-GMO, those are quick check boxes that help the consumer with, quite frankly, it is the last check box that a consumer is looking for. Because I'll tell you at the end of the day, while I'm an organic chopper, when I want a Cheeto, I could care less about the certification I'm putting Cheetos. Because <laughs> the natural ones can do in a pinch, but if I want a right. Cheeto, I'm going to go back to that. So I'm a huge fan of certifications, but just with the caveat of don't go crazy. The consume, This just helps the consumer be able to navigate much more quickly, especially yeah. if those are things that they need. Busy moms, absolutely. And I think Gen Z is looking for those certifications, but they don't want to see 40 of them either because they're like, okay, well, that costs that company a million dollars to get those certifications. That's a waste of time. I just, you know, I just want to know that blank, blank, these right. three certifications right. are the ones. So I want to change topic here because I know one of the things that I think you feel very passionately about is is women in leadership in the naturals industry and generally in the food and beverage industry. And I have two daughters and uh, that's, uh, that's also a topic that's very dear to my heart because I think, I think a, lot, a lot of things are being done, but I, I, you know, I think you have an interesting viewpoint and I'd like to learn about uh, what you think are some of the hurdles for women in leadership uh, that they keep running into, especially in, in this industry. Yeah. Well, I kind of touched on it a little bit earlier where I said, you know, we saw a lot of transition just in the last couple of years when we had a lot of Silicon Valley um, investment come into the naturals community. Suddenly, a lot of these smaller brands had the financing to hire deep expertise. And so they leaned on the conventional category, which was predominantly older men who'd been in the industry for a very long time. And so they kind of transitioned over into this natural space and displaced a lot of leadership not, it wasn't on purpose, right? It just was like, that's where the expertise was. Right. And so there's a couple of things that I think could be done that could be done better. First of all, some of the things that I've heard from a lot of the women is companies, there's a lot of women who found that find companies. If you look at the total percentage of new businesses that are started up, I think there's actually a greater percentage of women than there are men entrepreneurs at this time starting new businesses. But there comes a point in the business where the, the woman that's running the company and her family life or her personal life start to collide. Mm -hmm. And so they start making strategic decisions in that area. And then we're also seeing that in a corporate culture as well, where companies are starting to go, okay, you start to, you know, right around your thirties or forties, you start to get some traction. A lot of these women start to have families. Our American culture is still very predominantly the, the wife takes care of the children. And we have a culture that says, you know, if you have a nanny or childcare, you're not a good parent, you're not a good mother. We have all of these social kind of stigmas. And I think the biggest thing that women could do that I think men do really, really well are kind of 
ignore what's happening around them and figure out what's best for them and make decisions for themselves and kind of go, okay, yeah, okay, well, having a nanny might might be exorbitant, but if I want to be a VP or a CEO, I have to stay on track. I can't disappear from the workforce for 10 or 15 years and then be able to come back in like I have to catch up. So I think um, women are really good about helping, asking for help, but not in, I think, the big critical moments of their life. It's like, help me with this nonprofit event that I'm putting together, no problem asking for help. But if it's like, I'm having a problem figuring out how to take care of my childcare or my, or my housing, or I have a, I now have a parent that needs to come and live in the house with me. And I'm the one that's being looked on to take care of it. I think um, women need to start having really fierce conversations with them, with themselves, with their spouses. Oftentimes, I think there are plenty of men who would be willing to step up and go, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I know this role is important to you. Um, I know that your career path is important to you. And then I think reaching out into the community and asking the employer, there's often a fear of asking and talking with employers and saying, I can't, can I have a nursing room? I've got a childcare thing. And sometimes companies can allocate for that. And sometimes they can't, but the more frequently we are open and asking for those things that are needed for us as these women are fierce workers. They are smart. They're just getting pulled in too many directions. And oftentimes, oftentimes men are not saddled with all the different types of responsibilities. It doesn't mean that they don't have responsibilities. It's just, they don't have quite as many. And I think as a culture, the American culture, we have a problem asking for help, right? And we can, we have a problem asking for help because help means that something's wrong or that we're weak. It's the whole concept of like, well, why we don't have social security or why we, you know, we should have socialized programs for blank, blank, blank. That all means something like it gets all politically entangled instead of it's just like humans need help. We can't do this by ourselves. And quite frankly, the societies that have more um, collaborative communities and collaborative cultures have have women who stay in the workforce longer, who stay through through childcare. It ends up being a net positive for business for a couple of reasons. First of all, you can manage your workforce. You don't have people dropping in and out of the workforce left and right because they don't have a way to help. But then you also maintain the point of view of the consumer. And the reason why that's important in CPG is women still did something like 80% of all shopping for the home. And I'm talking about everything from siding your house to the car in your front driveway to the snacks you put in there. 80% are either done by or highly influenced by the women in the household. Why would you not want that POV in a leadership position of a company somewhere? And not just a single one, because there's more than one kind of woman, just like there's more than one kind of man. Like, why wouldn't you want that representation in there so that, you know, when you are talking to these people or you're developing a product or service for these people, that you have that legitimate authenticity that you were asking about earlier? Totally. I mean, this is like, uh, you know, a friend of mine telling me a joke about how a bunch of the guys got together on Sunday afternoon having a discussion and they're saying, you know what, and they're asking, you know, each other, you know, what kind of decisions do you make? He says, oh, you know what, I make, uh, 
I make all the little decisions. The wife says, you know, the decisions about, you know, uh, what home to buy and yeah. what cars are we going to drive, what kind of insurance, what kind of life insurance, where do yeah. our kids go to college? And, right. You know, all these little decisions. <laughs> so then what does your husband do? He says, oh, they get together on Sunday afternoon. They decide who should be the president. How should we solve the world yeah. uh, health crisis? And what should yeah. we do about climate change? Yeah. And, <laughs> and, you yeah. know, and that's so true because I think, I think women have a knack of being... Uh, very real, very practical mm-hmm. uh, about their approach. And I think mm-hmm. that they bring their life experience into their decision-making process yeah. Yeah. in amazing ways. We have uh, a number of people that we work with in our company that I'm continually amazed by because mm-hmm. I think I think the, the fact is, you know, in many ways, like you said, men's lives are compartmentalized, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, like you go out, you do this one thing and then you come back, you change your role and we're able to compartmentalize our life because we don't have quite the same number of responsibilities as, mm-hmm. as women in many yeah. cases. And yeah. and maybe it's this, these are societal norms that we have to think about changing and how, yeah. how we can free up more people to truly pursue some of these things. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think you bring up some terrific points here. I, I think, uh, you know, hopefully we're seeing some of that change starting to happen, that awareness coming in. Yeah. I don't think people should have to make a decision on whether I should have a family or pursue my career. I think they should be able to do both if, they, if that's what they want to do. And I think, Absolutely. You know, and I think I think more power to them. I think we just need to think more fundamentally, think about, you know, human beings, how do yeah. we contribute, right? And then yep. reduce the separation of, uh, and figure out how can we maximize everybody's potential and drive and allow them to pursue their passion and their dream. So, yeah. Without having, yeah, so I love it. I love what you've been talking about here. Gary, we need to get Diana back on here. (laughs) Yes. We're going to be here because we have some great guests. And one of the hallmarks of our guests here is me and Gary are chatting here and we look up at the clock and say, oh my God, you know, it's been 45 (laughs) minutes we've been talking. And uh, no, it's, it's terrific because I've been, I think the information that you gave today is incredibly dense. I, I feel I need to go back and listen to this recording and listen to the podcast when it comes out because I think there were so many things in what you talked about that had uh, really important for people to understand, right? And I think there's a lot of uh, things you just said in passing, but they're pretty heavy and they're pretty deep if somebody analyzes it. So, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Gary, and I'm sure you're the same. And I've, yeah, I've been absolutely. listening very intently and, um, you know, jotting down points wherever I could. But We'll look forward to getting you back on. All chapter, right. Yeah. Chapter two. Chapter two. Yeah. Our ha- oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, 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 and if people want to get in touch with you or retail, yeah. you, how, how do they do that? Diana? Well, listen, I am really active on LinkedIn. You can find me there. And I have a really um, interesting la- spelling in my last name. It's F-R-Y-C. So Diana Freik. You can, and you can interact with me there. Um, my podcast has a channel, um, on all the major social media It's called the gooder podcast and retail voodoo is just like it's spelled retail voodoo.com. You can find out more about what we do for brands and grocers and always open to active dialogue. Anything that I could do to spread the word of the women that are doing, um, really great work out there. And then uh, any opportunity that we have to help brands kind of change the world, like sign us up for that. Love to help out brands in any way, shape or form we can. We're going to have yes. to get Diana back with Mary. And you know what? You, you, you and you I stole will not, my, you stole my be, Yeah, we won't be able to have a chance to say a word, right? The two <laughs> of them are going to just run. 
totally. Uh -oh. But by the way, Diana, so at least from the track record that we know of, okay, and this is going out to the listeners too. Yeah. Uh, when we have women on our podcasts, those episodes tend to do really, really well. So it's either, I'm not quite sure. So I guess Gary and me are constant. So, <laughs> so I don't know what that means really, but anyway. We'll, we'll, we'll have to investigate those metrics there. Yeah, yes. No, yes. right? I know, no, but it's been, it's been so <laughs> enjoyable. And thank you so much for an open conversation. It's been, I mean, we're, I think you have an amazing background. I think what you have to contribute is truly amazing. And I wish you all the very best. And, oh, thank you. Uh, and you know, you know, people who need to get in touch with Diana, please do reach out to her through you know her website uh, linkedin linkedin or social media or podcast yeah. whatever it is i'm going to give you a podcast to listen so uh yeah we're doing that all right? the one that is going live that is live this week i'm really excited about um this the ceo of ecos family owned second generation woman of color and just killing it out awesome. there in um in household cleaning yeah um awesome awesome well i'm gonna be looking out for it and definitely giving it a listen yes uh, thank you so much for being on the show yeah. gary thanks. Any, anything no thanks for being with us today great conversation and look, look I, forward to the next one yeah i did want to tell you that if you are looking to get some merch from the retail perch okay I like that. some merch i from like the that merch perch. from the okay. perch okay oh, that's right merch from the perch just send us along your mailing address and we'll oh, send right. you a coffee, a coffee mug uh, Excellent. with a perch on it. That'll be terrific. And I love it. Have a permanent home in your office. So uh, listen, thank you again. I want to thank Stephanie again for putting this together and everybody who's been continuing to listen and support this uh, the Retail Perch podcast. You can find us at, at theretailperch.com on our website. You can also email us at the retail purchase birdseye.com and uh, if you got any questions for diana feel free to email us contact yep. diana whichever it yep. may be but yep. it's been absolute pleasure and you have a safe and wonderful week make sure to join us every monday and connect with us at the retail perch on instagram and facebook and if you have any questions feel free to email us at the retail perch at birdseye.com until next time this is shaker and this is Gary, signing off.